Hello and welcome to another episode of the Trading Desk Podcast. My name is Joshua Thanos, and today, back again, is my buddy, my life partner, my pal, fellow girl dad now, Jason Maine. Hey, Josh. How are you? I am doing fantastic, man. So Good to see you. A heck, of a heck of an introduction there. You deserve it, bud. As always. Yeah, you deserve it, man. It's, it's good to be talking to you. You're in... Uh, you're in sunny Philadelphia, I heard. Yeah. Yep. It's, uh, still in Philadelphia. Uh, not not back in Philadelphia, like Manjo says, but still in Philadelphia. Uh, soon to be still in Florida. So hopefully the end goal there soon. Um, yeah, down. But uh, yeah, great to be back on the podcast. Uh, speaking of Manjo, I caught uh, your guys' last podcast, which is pretty cool. And uh, always a good time uh, hanging and talking with Manjo. So I'm sure you had fun doing that one. Yeah, well, Mandros always does all the heavy lifting, so it's an easy, an easy chat with him for sure. He, he's uh, he's forgotten more about watches than you and I can aspire to learn. So that is for sure. And well, I was talking about this, and not to go off too far on a tangent, but um, based on the volume that our company does, and basically he's in charge of all the buying that goes on. And I mean, he's buying a, like an absurd amount of watches personally through the, you know for the company through um, like the dealer network, but also he's in charge of all the buying. So I mean. He might be the most prolific watch buyer on the planet at this point right now. I mean, there's we're buying what maybe a hundred watches a day in some cases, so uh, it's it's pretty exciting these days. And yeah, he's he's at the helm of uh, of our inventory, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, man, for sure. So uh, why don't you lay out uh, for our lovely guest and listeners what we're going to be talking about for uh, for the next what hour or so? Yeah. Absolutely. So, well, you're getting a little ahead of ourselves. So, um, well, today I'll introduce the topic, then we'll do our wrist check because we cannot forget to do the wrist checks. And I, we got a we got a fun wrist check today too. Actually, I got a double wrist. Uh, but today, uh, like the title states, we're talking about Grand Seiko. Um, it's a it's a brand that Jason and I are both uh, buyers of. Um, we both uh, have a, a somewhat of a history with it, and um, yeah, I think there's a ton of merit, and I think it's. It's growing in, popular, in popularity, so I thought it was a good idea to do kind of like a, a buyer's guide or all everything you have to know about Grand Seiko. So, just, but before we go too far, let's do the customary risk check. So, Jason Maine, what do you got? What you wearing today? Got a little bit ahead of myself there. I'm, I'm just uh, excited for the topic, so I need to start talking about the brand. But I am actually wearing, uh, I guess – my only Grand Seiko currently in the personal collection, which is, uh, it's been narrowed down by quite a few, but I am wearing my 9F Diver, the SBGX337, uh, which I've talked about before. It's a blue dial, quite a quite a stark blue, and it's uh, JDM exclusive. So we're going to talk a little bit about JDM in a little bit as well when we get into the brand, but, um, you know, exclusive to the Japanese domestic market, blue dial, yellow lollipop, secondhand, very, very comfortable case. Um, if you guys know the SBGX series, uh, it was available in, I think three different dial variants, um, domestically. And then this piece here. So, 
I actually like it quite a bit. Case is funky, dial pops. Uh, it's very comfortable on the wrist. Uh, you got your classic uh, iconic four o'clock crown. Uh, no date on this guy. Crazy loom. And then obviously the 9F is something pretty special and just super accurate. So uh, great watch. This is one that usually doesn't um, sit in the watch box with uh, all my other watches. This is a watch that usually sits on my nightstand because the nature of the 9F, like this is my grab it and go kind of watch. Um, so on those days where I find myself, you know, not, not looking to go in and grab something else, I just grab this off the nightstand. So nice. Yeah. I saw that when I was uh, up in Philadelphia, that is a very bright blue dial. That thing is um, a stark blue dial. You have to really love blue in order to love that watch, but I think it's a cool watch. It has a lot of presence and it, it looks much bigger than it wears on the wrist. Right. Right, yeah. If you look at it on a table or, or from across the room, it looks like a big, you know, massive, brightling-sized 47-millimeter kind of watch. But when you put it on your wrist, it really does kind of sit and feel more like a 42. Um, so it's quite nice, yeah. And the blue is pretty matte. It's not, you know, it's bright in the sense that, the you know, the actual color of the blue, but it's nice because it's a matte blue. It's not shiny or very high-polished, which is what attracts me to it. Sure. Awesome. Well, that's a cool watch. And yeah, the 9F Quartz, if you guys don't know, I think that's plus or, plus or minus 10 seconds a year. Um, accurate Quartz movement uh, it does have a battery, right? So all the 9F Quartz watches do have batteries and the other models that we're going to talk about don't. Um, so on my wrist today, uh, well, on the left wrist, currently I have my uh, Grand Seiko Snowflake. So anybody who's done five minutes worth of research into the brand will know what a snowflake is. Uh, it's kind of an iconic piece. It's a great piece to start your, your Grand Seiko collection off with, or if you just want to have one Grand Seiko, I think it's probably the best one to buy. Um, it's what they call high intensity titanium. It's what Tim Masso calls grade five titanium. Um, so extremely light watch. It's 41 millimeter has a large crown. So with the crown, it's probably closer to 43, uh, but it, it wears and feels more like a 39 millimeter. So it's a great everyday wear. Um, it has the iconic snowflake dial. That's the name. That's the reason why it's called the snowflake is because the dial on this watch looks organic. It looks like it was just fresh fallen snow on the dial. And that's one of the things that Grand Seiko does. And we'll get into that in terms of their, um, in, into the, how they make their dials and where they can get the inspiration for these dials. But uh, there's a amazing texture on the dial has these applied indices, all hand polished as well. So highly legible dial. And what, what I love about Grand Seiko and what you get with this watch and you get to, you notice it right away is that there's a lot of different facets on the, on the case and on the bracelet. And those are all finished by hand as well. Um, so uh, again, you're going to have a high polished titanium bezel with uh, a mostly brush case, but has, it does have some high polish, elements to the case as well on the corners and the side and whatnot. Um, the bracelet is actually very thin and that's one thing we'll talk about later on the episode in terms of some of the criticisms of Grand Seiko though. Um, initially that was a criticism for me. I, I didn't really love the bracelet, but I came to love it once I started wearing it. So you have this very thin bracelet and the buckle is essentially the same thickness as the rest of the bracelet links. So it kind of integrates itself in there. It's, it, it, it's in essence, similar to like a hidden clasp, on a uh, on a jubilee in the sense that it's um there's really not a big difference between 
the bracelet links and the uh, and the clasp. It's all just kind of integrated in together. Uh, beautiful GS logo on the clasp as well. Um, this one is a spring drive movement, which is going to be their. Uh, you know, they have three types of movements that that Grand Seiko uses. They use nine F courts, um, highly accurate courts. They have a spring drive, which is basically like a hybrid, or it's a it's courts regulated, and we'll talk about that a little more into the episode. Quartz regulated mechanical movement, and then they have the automatics. Um, so this one's quartz regulated mechanical movement with the power reserve on the dial. So this is the SBGA two eleven. Um, again, uh, the current snowflake, snowflake model, and it's amazing. Um, and just to be long winded, on the other wrist, I have an SBGE two five five, which is a uh, stainless steel GMT from their Sport line. Um, this one is actually a 40.5 millimeter. So it's a half millimeter smaller than the um, snowflake, but because it's stainless steel um, and because it's at least, I'd say it's uh, 30% thicker, um, the watch wears more like a 43 millimeter. So it's a a big hefty sport watch. Um, The SBGE255 has a blue dial, but it's a sunburst blue dial. It's not going to be a matte like, uh, like Jason's. It has a blue ceramic bezel uh similar to gmt bezel so it has the you know 24 hour markers on there um it's a time and date this is also a spring drive and i think for for my money these are probably this is a great two watch grand seiko collection having the gmt from the sport line and then having the uh the snowflake from the the heritage line but yeah stainless steel titanium um and you know lots of variations but both have like the essence of grand seiko both great watches so yeah, that's what I got on my wrist today. Awesome. Yeah, I would say it's hard to um, it's hard to find a watch in Grand Seiko's catalog that doesn't necessarily embrace the essence of the brand. And I, you know, you mentioned that they both have it. I think every Grand Seiko has it, and that's one of the things that they're most successful with. But uh, we'll we'll dive deeper into that when we uh, yeah. when we get there. Yeah, we t- just how Longa is very German. Uh, Grand Seiko is very Japanese, and and. And I say that with like the most respect, like they're, they have the best aspects of the culture, I'd say, are put into the watches, which I love. So, all right, Jason. Well, yeah, wrist checks are done. We're both wearing green Seikos. I got two. You got one. And uh, so there's three between us, two guys, three Grand Seikos. Let's go ahead and get started. So, um, Jason, question for you. Uh, why do you like Grand Seiko? I like the brand quite a bit. I've, I've been uh... – a fan and I don't know if I'd say early adopter, but I've liked the brand for the last five or six years. So I guess uh, I was kind of into the brand and uh, very heavily interested even before the split from, from Seiko to Grand Seiko when we call like double sign dials. Um, And I found the boom of the brand for me or what was interesting was right in the middle of that, in that kind of uh, controversial like split. And then we'll talk about that a little bit later too, because I know that's a, something that we wanted to touch on, but um, you know, I've loved the brand for quite some time. I think that it is, it's, it's kind of odd because they, in, in it's a double edged sword, right? The brand is so good and so refined and so simple in almost everything about what it does. It's it, very Japanese in that way. Um, you know, they, they say a uh, word that's always stuck with me with Grand Seiko, they say is Takumi, which is artisan, right? Like that's their driving everything that they do. And 
it's almost in, and I mean this in the best way possible, it's almost like Rolex in the sense that like everything is just so methodically pinned down that the watch is perfect. And if there's something that most people don't like about a Grand Seiko, it's a personal bias. It's not because the watch is bad. It's because they don't prefer a date or the case shape or whatever. But the, they have a large catalog so they can you know, meet a large portion of demand across the board. They have women's watches. They celebrate women's watches with the same kind of vigor for dials and different movements. Uh, so it's not a brand that you only get like quartz women's diamond pieces, uh, which is super cool. Um, I think that they have a good idea, a really good idea of who they are. And um, if you told me that there was somebody at Grand Seiko uh, higher up in the company that thought their watches were perfect and didn't need to keep evolving, then I, I don't think you could find that person. I call you a liar because I think that the driving factor for the brand is that they're, you know, they honor the past, but they're always un. It's kind of like a, an artist in that sense. Like they're always unhappy with what they're currently doing because it could always be better. Um, so sure. that's, that's kind of what, you know, the, it's a, it's an artisan watch for, you know, let's call it like layman pricing, you know, like, I think you can get a lot of bang for your buck, which is a, a driving factor in my decision. Thanks. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you had a lot, uh, hit on a lot of, you know, reasons why a lot of people like Grand Seiko's, including myself, um, you know, so, and it's funny that you said that, you know, they have a drive for excellence and they're, and, you know, even though, they are, you know, they're never satisfied, right? And it, it actually, if you if you look back into the history of the brand, so the brand itself started 60 years ago, which a lot of people, especially in the U.S., were surprised are surprised to hear when I tell people, oh yeah, the brand's been around for 60 years. They're like, yeah, right. And I just started hearing about this brand recently. You know, I knew Seiko, but I never knew Grand Seiko. So the brand started about 60 years ago. It was actually the 60 year anniversary was last year, and they made some anniversary pieces, which were really popular. Um, and it, you know. Before that, it was it was it was Seiko. Seiko was the was the brand, and Grand Seiko. They decided to create an offshoot of their original brand to focus specifically on accuracy. That was the idea because the uh, the founders and the and you know the executives at Seiko were looking at their counterparts in Europe, uh, in Switzerland mainly, and you know seeing that there was a there was competitions, chronometer competitions, and and you know. Uh, accuracy was one way that they could um, they could compete with the Europeans and, and there couldn't be because so like finishing and design while there certainly are some undeniable factors when it comes into finishing and design they are they're definitely subjective right like um, you know I, somebody somebody could look at a Picasso and decide it's you know it's junk even though we probably know that's not the case but it, it, there is a subjective nature and there's like a level of creativity that goes into that stuff. But accuracy is accuracy, right? It's either, it's either the, the watch is accurate or it's not right. We're just, you know, it's, it's absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what they started. And, you know, once they were able to make some of the most accurate um, watches in the world in that, in that time range, right around the 1960s, then they really established, <clears throat> excuse me, established themselves as a brand and started to grow. Um, they only sold their watches for the first 50 years of their existence. They only sold those watches, retailed them um, in in Japan. So they would be considered what JDM, right? And and that is it's funny because that's a that carries over to some other things in Japanese culture, which um, I want to talk to you about, right? So Jason, you, you you like cars, 
you like uh, uh, you have a Mitsubishi right now, right? right. Yeah, evolution. Yeah, evolution nine. Right. So you know you you're kind of in that world in terms of JDM cars, and that's kind of where that that term is is most relevant in my mind, at least. But um, you know, there's something about Grand Seiko that that kind of aligns itself with a lot of things that come out of Japan or exports in terms of Japanese culture, right? So there's JDM cars, there's anime, there's sushi, there's knives. They all have like the cult followings around them, right? And they all, and it's a lot of it has to do with um, you know specific traits that come out you know this island nation, right? So do you see that in Grand Seiko as compared to say for example JDM cars, right? So there's um, sure. you know. I don't know that it's like, you know, sushi, knives, cars, you know, I don't know that they're necessarily like equivalent in terms of having any relevance to each other. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like you mentioned the cult following and the people that become obsessed with, uh, you know, what these specific things are doing, I think just all come back to that same like reach for excellence type of, of love that the you know, Japanese culture and people put into their, their craft. And it's, you know, any craftsman, no matter what their nationality, the pursuit for, you know, like perfection is, is what drives their craft. Right. So I just, you know, one, there's, you know, quite a few people over there, um, to appreciate certain things. And two, uh, I think that there's a long standing history with like us appreciation for Japanese culture and, or, you know, not necessarily in our generation. Yeah. But appreciating, you know, that craftsmanship and appreciating some of the things that come out of, of that, uh, space. Um, you know, I can tell you that specifically in the car market and, uh, and some, well, we'll focus on cars. There's that same kind of cult, uh, following. I, I actually think even more so as there's guys that develop, you know, basically delve their whole lives into building and restoring and collecting, you know, nineties, early eighties and nineties, Japanese cars, and that certainly is a lifestyle. Um, that being said, you know, that, there's tons of passion there and hard work and sweat and tears. Um, but that being said, like, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody that's rebuilding multiple nineties cars is wearing Grand Seiko's just because they're Japanese, you know, but the appreciation yeah. and the cult following for each craft is certainly there. Yeah. There's not a lot of crossover between all these yet, but I feel like Grand Seiko specifically now, and maybe it is our generation, right? So you and I were both born in the eighties. Um, you know, we grew up on some anime shows that we loved and like, so, so, you know, and, and I grew up, you know, for whatever reason, loving sushi and, and I know you're a knife guy and there's like some of the most, um, the, the most world famous, uh, knife makers right now are Japanese guys. And there's like, you know, there's a longstanding history behind that. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that, that they cross over in terms of the type of culture, but they each have a cult following around them and Grand Seiko is is definitely one of them and, and one of the reasons why maybe so Grand Seiko came to the United States or started or was available for export right so we're selling outside of of Japan in 2010 that's when they brought the the brand um, to the world as opposed to just selling it in in Japan and you know maybe one of the reasons for that is because of the appreciation from maybe our generation of all things Japanese, right? We just, you know, there's cult fallings around all these things. So they, they decided there was a market and they could bring it outside the, um, outside the, their country. 
And then in 2017, and you already mentioned it, 2017 is when the brand officially broke off totally from Grand Seiko, or sorry, from Seiko, right? So it used to be uh, just another model line in the Seiko uh, lineup, and then they they totally separated the companies in 2017. And that's when you know they've really started to take off. We've seen a huge uptick in collectors' interest. Since then, there was some controversy too, you know, putting Grand Seiko on the on the dial and um, you know, there's, there is a, there is some controversy, I guess, or, or some criticism, I guess, of the brand in that sense. But um, that's really what it started taking off. And we're seeing a, a huge uptick in, um, in a lot of collectors looking for these, uh, these watches, finding specific models because th- that are limited and whatnot. And, and, you know, the, it's really becoming uh a a brand that is well respected in the collector community and almost every high-end collector that i know um has one of these in their in their collection or has had them at one time would you would you agree yeah yeah absolutely so um you know one of the things i would say too is the double sign stuff like i mentioned before i find there's still a tremendous amount of i think that we'll look back and realize that there's a tremendous amount of collectability in some of that stuff that's no longer offered, you know, like the first zero references of maybe a, a reference that's now just signed Grand Seiko, but the first reference was a zero reference, which had both signs on it. Like there's guys now that I talk to that go to look specifically for those double branded things. Cause who knows, you know, like that's not, no longer made and uh, you know, gone by the wayside and who knows in 10 years, if that could be super cool um, which I think is neat. Um, so I, I would agree with you. I think that the brand has in the last, you know, since 20, call it 2018, really, because, uh, you know, by the time you figured out all the dust cleared from the whole separation about 2018, when you figured out that the brand was really going to run Grand Seiko as an independent and let, you know, let Grand Seiko do its own thing and keep developing. So right around 2018, the watch received quite a big uh, boom and a lot of interest in a lot of collectors' eyes. Um, they were delivering pieces that, you know, Everything about the watch, accuracy, finishing, um, was was living up to the hype. And in my opinion, there's some there's some very strong similarities to uh, Zenith in the fact that you know kind of where they sit in the market. And if you know, you know. And a lot of guys love them, but they still had they still sat on that kind of outside of the market where people weren't ready to quite accept the brand into the mainstream market. And that both brands have done a really good job of kind of clawing their way into the mainstream collector's eyes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I celebrate Grand Seiko. I, I definitely love the watches. Um, you know, there's a lot to the brand for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when you look at a Grand Seiko, there's uh, there are a whole list of iconic uh, features of the brand, right? So, like, for example, Rolex, uh, people who don't know watches might see a, a date just or a day date and they're looking for that fluted bezel and that's kind of the iconic look of a rolex or maybe like a submariner with the bezel uh with this the the rotating ceramic bezel so there's iconic features of a lot of different brands and, and grand Seiko. Well, number one is there i feel like their bezel is going to be their their iconic feature right you can spot that across the across the room like they all have a uh, a a distinctive bezel, whether it be a, their ceramic bezel or whether it be one of these polished titanium bezels, the bezel seems to be like first and foremost, and it kind of frames the entire watch. Uh, but besides that, once you get your once you get your hands on the watch, 
number one, you're going to see the hands. Hands are really important. You know, they, they look at that as a point of creativity, right? They're, um, they're going to have they have the sword hands or they have their loomed hands of different shapes, and they'll, they'll do different hands for different anniversaries. Um, you know, all hand-finished hands as well. So the hands are really important. The dials, though, by far are going to be the most popular reason to buy a Grand Seiko because they have, you know, like my white snowflake, they have a blue snowflake, the sky flake. They have um, the different seasons, right? So different textured dials that are uh, in a lot of ways organic looking. And that was one thing that when I was doing the research for this podcast, uh, everybody was, anybody who knew anything about watches was talking about Grand Seiko, talked about how their dials in a lot of ways have organic look and feel to them. Whereas like say, for example, if you think about like Swiss watches and think about dial makers, like Kerry Vutalainen's, I guess, like would be the number one guy you're thinking about, right? And while his the dials are amazing and they're intricate, you never look at one of those dials and say, oh, there's, this is, you know, this reminds me of nature in some way. This is there. You could tell that a, that a person made this, right? Whether it's a machine involved or, you know, some, some, some large rose lathe or some, or, you know, small markings on the dial or painting or whatever it may be, it's going to be an artisan dial. Whereas Grand Seiko, a lot of times, especially with these textured dials, is looking to reflect something in nature uh, and, you know, an organic feel to them, which, again, I, I can't think of any other brand that has that as an iconic feature to their watches. And I think that does definitely set them apart. It's one of the many things that sets them apart. Um, and, you know, so we already talked about case design. Uh, also, all their all their cases are going to be uh, hand finished at the end, right? So they might be machined and um, and stamped and whatnot, but they're going to go through a level of hand finishing, which you can't even say that for Rolex at this point. You know, most Rolexes are, are just going to be finished by a machine. So yeah, hand finished cases. Usually, yeah, most famous. Sorry, you have most famously the there's Zeratu polishing. Right, um, Zeratu is the black is, polishing. Yeah, it's basically uh, the highest level of finish. Well, I guess aside from their masterpiece collection, which they do also use Zeratu, it's basically the highest level of polishing. Uh, and it's it is if you've seen it done, uh, it's quite a process. And basically, just spinning against a large tin plate, and it's all touch. You know, it's very easy to mess up, and it's very uh, time intensive and, and labor intensive. So uh, it's special on the wrist for sure. Absolutely. And when we talk about black polishing Zeratsu, um, it's it's an effect that uh, basically most angles of light that reflect off of the watch are going to reflect back in black. So it looks like it's black, even though it's clearly either titanium or stainless steel, you know, you're going to see uh, it's going to reflect back mostly dark tints. So uh, it is very tough. I think it takes, uh, was it, I think I read seven years for someone to be certified. To, to master the craft, yeah. Yeah, maybe it's seven years. It was either three or seven is the number I, was, I remember. But either way, you know, it takes years to master. And they have kind of cornered the market when it comes to this type of finishing. And, you know, adding this to your watch adds like a level of richness that you get. And especially at the price points, you know, we'll talk about those in a minute. But anywhere from $2,500 all the way up to like 15000 is kind of their sweet spot. And a lot of a lot of those watches land kind of in the middle of that right, five to $7,000 mark. And when you compare all these aspects – to other brands in that price range, like Grand Seiko kicks all their butts in that sense, right? Um, and uh, but yeah, so they so the iconic features of Grand Seiko, and then the last thing is that the the double um, the double line marker at uh, at twelve is going to be on all their watches, and that's one thing that if you're looking at a Grand Seiko, you're always going to be looking at the top to twelve marker. It's going to have that double, and it's 
um, you know, it, it's something that you're going to see across the board in all their watches in an iconic feature. Uh, I mean, in most of the models, not all. The twelve o'clock. You're sick. Yeah, I mean the divers like the watch I'm wearing now has the has the triangle twelve o'clock marker. Right, that's right. Quite a few others, but it is it is kind of a signature of most of the handsets and dial sets, um, as well as another thing I would point out. Um, you know, we talked about the dial being, you know, your focal for your eye, the hands are important, but, uh, Grand Seiko is pretty famous for the frame around the eight window as well on most of their dials as it being, you know, kind of a, a call card sign. It's not something where they just cut the dial and leave it alone. You know, uh, there's not much that Grand Seiko leaves alone. Everything is touched, uh, which is much appreciated by the, the people that collect the brands. Um, you know, I, I think you hit, you hit it pretty much on the head with, the love for the brand kind of for all collectors spans the whole collection. I think you and I predominantly, you know, love, you know, maybe half of the total collection or, or three quarters, but there's something, you know, I was kind of trying to touch on earlier. There's something for everybody, which is cool. It was super cool. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and talk like deep dive, put a deep dive into the, um, the different collections that they have. So if you're just new to Grand Seiko and you're thinking, all right, what, you know, where do I start? Uh, you know, you're going to be looking at three distinctive collections, and then there's going to be one that's going to be uh, the the higher end collection. And it's going it, to it will encompass some of the same um, cases out of these other collections. So we'll start here. So there's three main collections. There's going to be a sport collection, a heritage collection, and the elegance, right? And they kind of do explain, you know, what they are. Sports obviously going to be their chronos, their GMTs, their divers, right? Um, elegance is going to be uh, all their dress watches, right? So it's going to be a little bit more refined. They're going to have um, slightly thinner cases in a lot of cases. Uh, they're going to look a little bit more um, vintage inspired and uh, you know, more dress watches. And then Heritage Collection is going to be kind of their main their mainstays, right? So like, for example, my, uh, my Snowflake is in that Heritage Collection. And, and the Heritage is probably the the collection that I would stick within. I can have an entire collection of just heritage models, um, but you could realistically build an entire collection all out of uh, Grand Seiko's. And that's what's, that's another thing that's so great. So like similar to Rolex, and a lot of times we're comparing them to Rolex because realistically the way that they're, the company runs and, and the watches that they put out are, you know, it's going to be, and some, I've heard some people explain to them as, explain the brand as Japanese Rolexes. Right. And, and I don't think that's a dig. I think that's actually a compliment for the brand. So, you know, they have models across the board that would basically um, fit everybody's collection, everyone's tastes for the most part, and really any situation that would put yourself in a, in a need for a watch. So um, the sport collection, uh, the heritage and the elegance. So let's start with the heritage collection, Jason. So I have I have the uh, the snowflake. That's probably the one that I would recommend from that collection. So these are going to be mostly, you know, uh, mid-sized watches, 40, 41 millimeters. Um, you're going to have a variety of, of dial designs, um, some variations in the case designs, and um, you're going to have automatic spring drive and 9F quartz models, right, across the board. Yeah, yeah, of course. So across the entire length of the brand, including the – uh, masterpiece you have that line of movements exactly uh, so sorry, yeah so i mean 
Yeah, no, I, the I think delineating the differences between the movements is important. We can, I think, we want to talk a little bit about that too. But um, between the brands specifically, I'll say that like the sport line is kind of where my heart lies in terms of my interest with the brand. Um, the heritage certainly has some pieces that I really like out of the heritage collection. And if I was going to recommend, um, you know, maybe a few pieces, uh, they'd probably be like I'm really interested in the new. Uh, SBGM 247, which is uh, their, I guess, Explorer 2 equivalent, uh, the new GMT with the ink-filled bezel. Um, I happen to be a big lover of green, so that kind of stood out to me. Um, and I, I saw that release just recently. I don't think it's even hit stores yet, but it's quite a nice piece, $5,700 uh, retail, and uh, you're getting the automatic GMT movement. Uh, pretty cool watch for the money. I think it's a it's t- it's about the same size as uh, as your Snowflake. It's forty point five. Mm-hmm. It's got the uh, I think that has the new the nine S sixty six in it, which is nice. Absolutely, and and that's one thing you'll notice, guys, if you're looking at the dials for the Grand Seikos, you want to you're wondering offhand which movement they have. So if it doesn't say well, so the spring drives will say spring drive, the automatics will say automatic, and the nine F ports won't say anything. Right. So if you and obviously if you're a watch guy, you're looking at these watches, you see the the, the seconds hand ticking. Um, well, then obviously it's going to be a quartz. But but if say the watch is not running or you only get a glimpse or you're looking at a picture of it and you don't see anything uh, referring referring to the movement on the dial, that'll be a 9F quartz. It's also going to be on the lower price range. So, for example, uh, like one of the the heritage models that I would recommend that I think is really beautiful to create combination is the SBGN 009, right? So that's a 9F Quartz GMT and um, beautiful blue dial with yellow accents. This one's going to be in stainless steel and, you know, sapphire crystal. It's only $3,000 US, right? So you're having uh, an ultra accurate hand finished watch for $3,000. Like like, where are you going to find better value than something in in luxury watches and that right it just there's there's not too many things that you can compete with that right and then if you look at if you move up into like an automatic so a similar model would say like a blue dial um in stainless steel is going to be uh like the sbgr 321 so blue dial or red accent time date automatic it's only 5200 so again you know the range between these if you wanted to splurge and get the automatic you're only spending a few thousand dollars more uh, you know, less than double, right? And, that, and those are on the heritage models. Um, if you're looking at the sport models, you know, Jason already mentioned the the, the new GNT that he likes, the uh, SBGM 247, right? Is that the one you mentioned? Yeah. So steel bezel, and a lot of these models have ceramic bezels. Um, if I were to pick one specifically, so I already own, obviously, the SBGE 255 in blue, which I love, but I don't know if I would recommend that for everyone. I, it's actually... Um, it's actually a watch that I'm thinking about possibly trading towards a diver because I've gone back and forth um, through different models. I've had a 9F quartz diver that I like that felt a little bit big for me, but I think I'm ready to go back to it. So if I were to pick one sport model um, or say, let's say a few, but the one that I would want to put my money into or what I'll probably buy next would be the SBGH291. So this is the, I guess the sub equivalent to the Samaritan equivalent for Grand Seiko. Um, it's also, it's titanium. So it's a larger watch. It's 43.8 millimeter. 
which should be a little bit too big, but because it's titanium, it's going to feel a little bit lighter and smaller on the wrist. Um, big, beautiful diver's bezel and uh, black dial, beautiful hands, big um, uh, 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 markers on the dial. They're going to have full of, they're going to be full of loom and it's highly legible. And that's one thing about Grand Seiko is that their watches are highly legible. Um, and that's, you know, that's one of their focuses is not, is to make watches that are, you can see, you know, uh, regardless, right. Of, of the love of lighting or even of your eyesight. And a lot of times, you know, they're, it, they make it. So it's, they're highly legible watches, which I really, really appreciate. Um, yeah. And then if your selection, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was saying if you, and if you didn't want something so large, then the SBGs would, would work for you as well. The GMTs are going to be a little bit smaller. Like mine's a 40.5, but it's a little bit thicker. And especially in stainless steel, they're going to be a little top heavy. So that's only one thing you want to look out for. Yeah. I mean, your selection of that titanium piece, I, I previously owned the 231, which is the discontinued reference of that SBGA 231, um, which is the predecessor to that model, uh, had the power reserve indicator on the dial. The new, new piece you mentioned, uh, got rid of the power reserve for just kind of a cleaner dial appearance. Um, it's a good watch and it wears really well, uh, for its case size in titanium. So it's going to be, if you're talking about one grand Seiko and that's it, you're done. I think that's a pretty good choice. I, uh, I did, I guess, uh, throw out my sport, uh, recommendation before my heritage kind of did it inverse of you. But if I was going to recommend a piece from the heritage, it's actually a watch that I, I've wanted to own and still want to own for a while. And it's the, uh, SPGA 429 which is the, uh, the Soko. Um, mm. So it's got that gray bamboo granular dial with the pops of lime green, which is super cool. And kind of a little bit funky for uh, a little out of the normal for Grand Seiko. And I, I do applaud some of the new like nature dials, like the, the pink dial is really pretty. Um, but I find this Soko kind of uh, draws my attention. It also has a really pretty uh, exhibition case back that shows shows off the uh, the 9R65 that's in it, which is a, a nicely decorated movement. You don't often get Grand Seikos with exhibition case backs um, where you can see the, the movements, but for $5,000 price point, you do get a second strap, which is pretty cool. And it's a 39 that kind of, it has a 46, like a 46 or 47 millimeter lug to lug, but so it's a 39 millimeter that kind of wears like a 40, which is nice. And it's still relatively thin too. So that's, I think that's a good pick for the heritage for like a, a lot of people. Yeah, I would agree. And and one thing about the spring drive, right? Cause people hear the word quartz and they assume that it's a battery powered watch. So the idea of the spring drive is simply it's quartz regulator, right? So instead of having a statement, which is going to be what um, drives all the timing in all of your watches, all of your automatic and manual wine watches, um, instead of having an escapement, they replace that with a quartz oscillator, which is simply just going to, it's going to be able to basically keep the time on your watch, but everything else. And that's driven by, um, you know, a winding stem and a winding rotor. So that's what gives the, the power for the quartz oscillator. So there's no battery in this watch. And if you look at the case back, you can't see a, a difference between this and a fully automatic uh, movement with an escapement. Like you're, you're looking at a hand finished, hand assembled mechanical watch when you look at the case back. So don't be scared when you see spring drive. Oh, that's a quartz watch. No, it's just a very, very accurate. It's basically best of both worlds between quartz and automatic. Um, you know, this is make make no mistake. This is a mechanical watch. 
Yeah, I mean the spring drive is a is a freaking workhorse too. Um, the regulator that you're talking about, uh, Seiko calls it the tri-synchro, and it's it's basically just a electromagnetic brake, right? Instead of an escapement. So it's exactly what you said. Like it's the best of both worlds, and it is, you know, uh, besides the 9F or the Quartz series, it is the one of the most you know reliable and accurate movements that Seiko m- makes. So the common I guess uh, skepticism for most people is the price point. They think that the high beat and some of the automatic pieces are going to be superior movements in terms of accuracy. And this is not the case. Um, you know, it's the spring drive is the best of both worlds. Like I have a nine F and I love the nine F movements, but you know, granted there is, even though it's a hand finished uh, quartz movement, it's not as elaborate and as beautiful as the spring drive and having owned both. I think I'd pick the spring drive more often than not. And uh, it, it really is nice. And you get the accuracy too. I think the spring drives are plus, uh, most of them plus are like minus 15 plus seconds, 10 seconds month. a month. Yeah. It's 15. Um, yeah. 15 seconds a month, which is something that, you know, there's no Swiss manufacturers that are rating theirs for the month. It's usually per day. It's right. usually like between two and five seconds per day is the uh, variance. Whereas, Grand Seiko comes right out and says, these, these are plus minus 15 seconds per month. 10 to That's 15. So like they have, I think, seven different spring drives or so okay. across the line. So like the 38 joule stuff, um, you know, not the pieces that have like the large torque power reserve or dual times or any of that stuff are going to be even, you know, they obviously Minder. use less energy. So they're like plus 10 or less, or less finest, uh, less five. So yeah, figure 10 to 15 average per month, which is insane. Um, you know, so un- unheard of outside of a quartz watch in this space. Yeah. And, uh, and then let's, let's sum up the, the elegance models. If there's anything that you would look at, I mean, so I, these are, these are not the watches that I look at when I look at Grand Seiko. I know that they are very popular. And if I had to recommend one, probably the, the one that's impressed me so far the most would be the SBGY 007. It's a new release. Um, we've already had a lot of demand for it. We sold a few, uh, it's going to be, you know, on, on a leather strap. It's going to have the cushion case. It has the, uh, snowflake textured dial, but in a light blue, like almost like a, they call it like a sky flake or a sky fall. Um, and it does have the spring drive movement. Uh, it's manual wind though. So, uh, you know, it does have a very beautiful decorated movement and a lot of 38 and a half millimeters. So it's a little bit smaller and say my um, my forty one millimeter uh, snowflake, but you know these are these are the watches for someone who's looking at something that's a little little dressier, right? Yeah. So um, you know the idea of this series is going to obviously be their dressier applications. Um, I don't know that this is you know this is not your first Grand Seiko purchase uh, in this series. Generally, the price points are that of you know precious metal and much higher cost. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if I was I'm torn because I, you know, I, I love the brand. And I, like I said, I love about half of what they produce model line wise, just in line. And it's not to say it won't change, but in line with what I like to wear now and my current, you know, my life as it sits. Uh, maybe if I wore a three piece suit again for 10 to 15 years, like I used to in the past, I would change. But uh, I really don't need uh, anything from the excellent, uh, you know, the elegance collection currently. I do happen to have a favorite from the line, which is a limited edition. It's the SBGW 264, which is uh, 
one of their precious metal pieces, uh, rose gold, obviously all hand finished. It's got a, a very uh, kind of clean, bright British green hand laid dial. Um, and it is, it's a manual movement as well. Similar to your pick, Josh, it's got the, uh, the 9S64 in it. It's, it's really, really pretty. Um, 39 millimeter case. So relatively dressy and thin with the manual movement, but at $24,000 us, uh, retail, um, you know, definitely not your first grand Seiko purchase, I would say. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so, you know, but so you can see the lines here, they have the elegance, they have the support, they have the heritage. They also do have a, like a higher echelon, um, of watches as well. It's called their masterpiece collection. So they take cases and watches from other collections and they'll, they will either um, highly finish the movement, do something really special with the case. They'll do it in a special um, metal, like platinum. They'll add diamonds to them. These, this is where you're going to find like your super high-end watches. These are watches that are going to be from forty to $200,000. Um, extremely limited a lot of times in 10 to 15 pieces and sometimes less than that. Um, and watches that are, that are highly collectible. And that's one thing that I want to talk about next is because, you know, for years, when I got in this industry, um, you know, I started with 2013. So um, I heard from the beginning, oh, you buy a Grand Seiko, you take a big hit. You know, I would like, I'd love to wear their watches, but I don't want to take such a big hit when I go to sell it because there's no demand for them. So, you know, that's one thing that I think has definitely changed in the last few years is that, you know, the liquidity and the demand around these, uh, these watches has made it so they can compete with more with many Swiss watches. And a lot of times, you know, if you compare them to like Richemont brands or Swatch Group brands, um, these watches are trading much stronger than those, right? So there's there's going to be – they only make about 35,000 watches every year, which if you compare to Rolex, makes a million. Um, you know, uh, uh, Paddock makes roughly, what, 100,000 watches. So, you know, especially in this price range, they are not overproducing and there's wide-reaching demand for these watches. So they tend to actually hold – a lot of good value. Some of the watches are selling well above the retail, few models here and there, but most of them are going to be trading at or uh, just below their retail. So you can buy them through retail. So like, for example, we're, we're authorized dealers for Grand Seiko and I have a customer who'll ask me for a watch. If they ask me for a steel Rolex, you know, a lot of times I can't, I don't have one available, right? Um, if you ask me for a, a Grand Seiko, a lot of times I do have the watch available and when it's time to trade, even though you bought it brand new, to retail, you're not taking some sort of massive hit. You know, the, the watches do hold value and it seems like they're slowly edging upwards in terms of demand and value overall. Is, is that what you're seeing, Jason? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I see a great amount of respect for the brand from the people uh, wearing and aspiring to, to have one, um, which is nice to see. I mean, the, the same level of respect that gets put into the watch is is shown by the guy that's wearing the watch, which is not quite often the case with people that chase stuff that's like super hot right now and flippable, you know, sometimes it's just, you happen to, you happen to know that a buddy told you, you can make a lot of money if you found one of these, you know, but I, I think similar to kind of not to draw too much parallel back to my Zenith comparison, but similar to that, like, I don't think you find that brand accidentally. You find that brand by setting down the path of a, of someone who appreciates the craftsmanship and what you get for the money and a collector who's, who's really taking note of what you're buying so that's that's how you end up at Grand Seiko. That's how you go down the rabbit hole of having several of them and figuring out which one works best for you. Um, to kind of touch on the uh, 
the masterpiece collection that we were talking about. Um, the the cool thing here, I think, is that it's not an excuse to just gem set everything and precious metal everything. For me, what this this brand um, derivative, you know, this this model line is like a, kind of like their concept cars. You know, it's kind of like let's push the envelope. And obviously there's going to be some R&D price point stuff. And to justify that, we're going to put it in a solid platinum Zeratsu polish case, you know, but you have a, a absolutely gorgeous eight day in, in most of them. I think um, the, the nine R it's an eight day nine R zero one eight day manual movement. And it's, it's beautiful. Uh, and I think they use that in quite a bit of this collection, but there's also, I mean, you're talking, I think, 42,000 US entry point, 42, 57, and then you quickly get up to like 185, $195,000 with some of the gem set stuff. But like you said, usually it's like one of 12 or one of 15, and uh, it really is kind of like their end all be all push towards, you know, kind of everything that they could possibly do, which is yeah. cool. And, and there was a, a time in which like some of the higher end Grand Seikos, if they made 10 or 15, they could sell five of them through retail and the rest of them had to go out the back door and they got, you know, they, they would devalue the brand. Whereas nowadays, you know, if they make 50 pieces, for example, like the SBG Z007, which is a, like a ridiculous watch, it's a, a full platinum and it's hand engraved on the on the case. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. You have to look at this watch. If you look it up, uh, SBG Z007. So it's basically like the like the similar to the frosting that's done on these, the, the AP frosted gold watches, you know, hand engraved though. It actually takes a little bit more time and effort uh, than simply the frosting, which is just literally like tapping um, with a hammer and a mallet. And uh, um, you know, that's a watch that they made 50 pieces and they can sell all of them through retail. And you know, now the demand is high enough for those types of pieces where people are going to be looking to spend the money, you know, it's a seventy-nine thousand dollars retail, and they're going to get the money for it. So it's good to see that. Um, so uh, I think we've got over all the good things about the brand, Jason. So before we end the episode, let's talk about some of the criticisms, right? Um, we could talk about the criticisms around the brand, the name, but also the watches themselves, right? Because I think, especially you and I, when we first got our hands on these, when I met you back at Watch You Want. We talked about Grand Seiko, and I remember we talked about some some criticisms we had about the brand and why we didn't want to buy them initially, right? So you want to you want to start off with some of the criticisms that people bring up for the brand? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think you know the obvious criticism is is that it to you know derived or derivative from a, a cheaper watch brand. Um, what I would say is you know I I happen to love Seiko before I even knew about Grand Seiko. Um, I started my career you know, basically buy, selling, trading, uh, $200 Seikos, um, you know, and a lot of volume, but really got dove into, uh, you know, vintage Seiko, um, grand Seiko though, I think specifically like a lot of people's hesitation, if you're not aware of the brand is, is their affiliation or people still think, well, that's just Seiko. That's just an expensive Seiko. But, uh, like I was talking about earlier, you know, it's very easy to kind of dismiss and have some skepticism there. But if you dive into it, that's you can make the case for it. Um, I think my main skepticism for some of the brand is uh, is basically the con of the pro that I made a case for earlier. And that's their their diversity. I think, you know, they spend a lot. Of, I would say they spend 
80, 85% of their time on, you know, 50% of the watches that they make. And then the rest of them kind of, you know, fall by the wayside, like specifically some of the women's pieces. And you can look this up. By the way, Grand Seiko's website is fantastic for all of this, like uh, specific data on the movements. And you can go in and you can deep dive and do like a real history check and a real complication check on their website, which is cool. Like, I don't know too many websites that list the entire movement, every spec, every of each movement, timing, you know, approximation for service, everything like that. It's pretty cool. But one of the few th- or one of the many things that the Japanese do better than the Europeans and the Swiss is the internet. <laughs> they figured that out. Their website has always been and still is one of the best uh, brand websites. I mean, some of these brand websites, if you go to Panerai's website, once you, you feel like you want to bang your head against the wall, it's so terrible. Um, so, and I appreciate that. The attention to detail when it comes to, you know, consumer facing, um, you know, the consumer facing portion of their website. So sorry. And I, it's, go ahead. I had to say that. No, it's, it's cool because it's, it's as detailed as you want it to be or as little, like you can certainly find out the difference between a, you know, a nine F and a manual movement, you know, an automatic movement and that's easy. And you can just say, okay, I like this one and keep going. Or you can double down and say, you know, well, what's the, what's the you know daily run rate of this specific, you know, movement. Um, my only thing is like Seiko has a history and kind of a, a love with, let's say accuracy and Grand Seiko as well. Obviously from the, where they were born, we touched on earlier was the pursuit of accuracy. It's like the single driving factor. And in fact, like a lot of the early movements that they submitted for accuracy testing weren't even production movements. They didn't care about durability or how the, you know, how long it would have to be serviced or anything like that. They just wanted accuracy so far as to beat the Swiss, you know, they, they figured out different means of how they got to those contests because of the, the, you know, the magnetic poles of the earth. So they were taking this stuff way serious, uh, you know, off the offshoot of like coming off a of feudal Japan, you know, uh, creation from, from Seiko. This is, this is like the westernizing, you know, the, the mainstream production, the accuracy drives everything idea. Um, so for me, it's a little disheartening, you know, one, you mentioned uh, in the intro, having, you know, just had a daughter, you have one as well. And uh, I will say, you know, be the first one to say that kind of changes my perspective towards women collectors and what I would hope she would want to wear in the future, uh, whether it be my watches or something that she gets into. Anyways, not to be overly long-winded, but Grand Seiko's women's watches are not very accurate. Um, and you can buy something like a high beat or an automatic Grand Seiko movement and in a men's watch get, you know, less two plus four. And in the same, you know, women's watch regulated to less three plus eight. So it's it's something that I would say, you know, I love the brand, 99% all the way there. I would say if I was going to give him a dig, it'd be something like that. All right. You've heard it here. Jason thinks Grand Seiko does not care about women. Hashtag I, me I too. I think quite, quite the opposite. I think they make <laughs> beautiful women watches. They make quite a lot of diverse models for women. I just don't see it accuracy being a driving you know, point for them. But sure. I'll give them credit. You know, They do have real movements inside of them, unlike some other watch brands that only make quartz, diamond-clad women's watches. So – you know, they're definitely on the way towards giving like real horological significance to women's watches. I just wish they took, you know, they could promise this type of accuracy that they do on some of the men's pieces. I got you. Makes sense. Yeah. So you, you, 
you mentioned their name, and that's one thing I often think to myself, like, you know, would would Lexus sell as many cars as they do if they were called Grand Toyota, right? Or Acura if they were called Grand Honda, you know? So the fact that they that the name is Grand Seiko and they never changed it and they kept it, um, I think, well, number one, it could certainly be a, a criticism, but I think for, well, for hardcore collectors of the brand, it's it, it shows that they're committed to you know history right they could have changed the name of this of this brand they had no they would they would have no problem doing so they didn't sell them outside the u.s until 2010 they could have launched them uh with a new brand name and you know nobody would have would have complained other than the you know the hipsters of the brand people who've been collecting you know on ebay and whatnot try to get them outside outside of japan uh, for all these years so so that's one of the criticisms the other one is like from a technical standpoint or from like a wearability is the bracelets, right? That was one thing that we all kind of uh, mentioned the past date. Their bracelets in a lot, some ways still do leave something to be desired. But, um, you know, at first, at first glance, you grab a watch and you save, you, you pick it up by the head of the watch, right? You have the case in your hand. It feels great. feels sturdy. You look at the movement. It feels amazing. And then you feel the bracelet and it just, it feels a little lighter than it should. And some in some cases, feels a little cheap, right? The clasped bracelet, you know, they use they use the pin and sleeve um, uh, way, uh, the pin and sleeve method to uh, add and add and subtract uh, links, which can be very frustrating. A lot of t- people can't do it themselves. You know, I do it myself, but it is kind of annoying. You know, it would be nice if they use uh, like screw pins. I would I would absolutely love that. Um, but also, you know, they're clasped. There's no, there's no micro adjustment on any of these watches. Is there, is there one on yours? Uh, yes. In fact, the diver does have the, uh, their divers do have the micro adjust. It's kind of a, it works really, really well. It's kind of weird looking. I will say it's not as, uh, it's very easy to use and it does work very well, but if you extend it too far, it starts to look a little weird. Um, okay. but it does have it. So. so the divers, but the GMTs and the heritages do not have a micro adjust. So, uh, you're going to have to play with them, you know, back and forth in order to get the fit right. And that was a little bit tough for me, especially with this, uh, with the hair or with my uh, um, snowflake. I, I would say that if I didn't have the ability to, to move the links myself, I don't know if I'd have the patience to go to a watch, like a, like a local jewelry shop or have my watchmaker sit there, take out the links. Let me try it on. Oh, okay. It's balanced or it's not balanced, you know, figure out the best way to wear this watch. So that is certainly a uh, criticism, guys. So if you're if you're out there and you try the watch on, make sure you have somebody who can uh, – and say if you purchase one of these watches, make sure you have somebody who can change out these links for you and will have the patience to sit there for 10, 15, 20 minutes to you know, take out the links, put them back in to make sure that you have the right balance because that's a big thing with a lot of watches. Um, if you don't have – if they're not balanced on your wrist, a lot of times they're just – they're unwearable. Right. I've had watches that I love now, but I hated for a long time because I just couldn't get the bracelet fit right. So that's one thing that I would love to see them kind of improve in the future is, you know, uh, having pins, uh, screw pins for their links and then having uh, some sort of at least a half link adjustment across the board on all their models. Right. When you say. Yeah, I think if um, that would certainly help kind of tip the scale towards people's um I would say people's disdain for the bracelets. I don't know if disdain is the right word, but people have a 
kind of a uh, negative position on on most of their bracelets. And they're, for a long time, it was said that, you know, they felt cheap, the bracelets. or the, And I, I don't think it was the bracelets specifically, but more like the buckles um, and the way they sit. And it really does take some, some you know, to your point, kind of messing around with it. Um, I If I was going to call for something that I think would be super cool is um, where a lot of brands are moving with like the uh, quick change strap system and having, being able to go from like a bracelet to a rubber to a leather in, you know, I, I could certainly see that being cool in either the heritage or the sport collection. And I would hope that they'd come out with something like that. Um, I just want to real quick in, in terms of like, um, before we get too far away from the, the pinnacle of Grand Seiko being, you know, a lot of people's, uh, the masterpiece collection being like their higher, higher end. And you kind of mentioned, you know, that they didn't change the name. They kind of kept the Grand Seiko name, which is uh, an uphill battle. And they, you respect them for that. Um, and if you're not a fan of buying something like the Masterpiece, I think we'd be remiss not to shout out Creator yeah. for for their highest end kind of what Seiko can do at the very ultimate. Um, so that's something to check out. That's obviously a conversation for a different day, but I just wanted to yeah, touch on it. That's right. That was one thing we did skip over. I apologize at Creator. C-R-E-D-O-R is there. Uh, that is like an entire brand of Grand Seiko watches that are going to be the highest level of finishing, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, a different brand entirely, but it's the ultimate at what they're capable of doing. Correct. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I, and I think that the, the future's, the future is bright for Japanese watchmaking. We're seeing some some more Japanese um, independents popping up, and they are becoming more prominent in the watch world. You know, for me, I'm always I, the way I look at it is uh, competition is good for everybody. You know, that's uh, that's how I feel about almost everything. So, you know, having all the all the luxury watches in the world coming out of Europe is not a good thing. You know, you need to get different flavors, different styles. So, the fact that Japan is really cementing itself in the luxury watch world, I think is really good for everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. Competition fuels, you know, creativity and that's, uh, and there's definitely demand there for different markets. You know, not too long ago, people wouldn't have bought Longue or wouldn't have bought Glushute original because they were, you know, German. That's certainly a stigma that they overcame. And I think Grand Seiko has done an excellent job at overcoming that as well. Yeah, absolutely guys. Well, so listen, we're, we're a little over an hour. We've ran long on this as I assume we would. Um, so I'm sure there's things we've missed. I'm sure there's some things we got wrong. So reach out to us directly. If you, uh, if you have some, uh, some gripes or you want to give us a high five or whatever, if you want to reach out to us, uh, Instagram's the best way. I'm at Mr. Thanos, M R T H A N O S on Instagram. Jason, what's your, what's your IG handle? Uh, so it's Evo underscore watches. Okay. Evo, Evo underscore, underscore, underscore watches. watches. Yep. Uh, Evo underscore watches for Jason. And uh, if you want to check out any of the watches that we've discussed, uh, you know, we are uh, through our parent company and authorized dealer of the brand. So if you want to reach out to us about any of those watches or just want to chat about Grand Seiko, you can reach out to us directly. Check out watchbox.com for all of our pre-owned watches, Godbird Jewelers, or godbirdwatches.com for any of the new stuff. Um, YouTube, uh, we have the best YouTube channel, I would say at this point. There's no question, right? We have YouTube Studio, or sorry, uh, Watchbox Studios. And we have Watchbox Reviews. Watchbox Reviews, essentially Tim's channel, hands-on reviews, side-by-side comparisons of watches uh, that he handles all himself. Watchbox Studios is going to be more of our our uh, personality content, um, you know, 
personality-driven content. You have Mike Manjos' show every Saturday morning. I do not miss one. The Market Wrap is fantastic. Um, it's one of my favorite shows. I've been a guest on there. I think Jason needs to get his butt on there too. So check that out. Um, Watchbox, uh, at Watchbox on uh, Instagram. And uh, until next time. I think that's it, yeah. That's right. See you next we'll Tuesday. do a Grand Seiko Part 2 eventually. Yeah, maybe we'll pick a different brand. All right, guys. Adios. See you next Thanks, Tuesday. Guys, bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.